This is Speaking Freely with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Hoover, your host and Director of Communications at the ACLU of PA. In this episode, we're joined by journalist Matt Stroud talking about his new book, Thin Blue Lie, The Failure of High-Tech Policing. Matt is based in Pittsburgh and is the founder and publisher of Post Industrial, an online print and podcast platform covering the issues of the 21st century in the region sometimes known as the Rust Belt. Matt has also been a staff writer for Bloomberg News, the Associated Press, and The Verge, and his work has appeared in The Atlantic, Politico, BuzzFeed, and The Intercept. And in the interest of full disclosure, Matt worked for the ACLU of Pennsylvania as a researcher for about a year in 2016 and 2017. Matt's book, Thin Blue Lie, explores advances in technology and policing and how that technology has so often failed to live up to its promise. In this conversation, we talk about the prominence of the taser and about how body-worn cameras have ceased to be a tool of transparency and are instead a means for police public relations and spin. This conversation was recorded on May 9th. Well, Matt, thanks for taking the time to come in and talk about your new book and talk about technology and policing. Really appreciate your time, and it's great to see you again. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So, Matt, let's talk about your book. Uh, Let's just start with the title. The title is Thin Blue Lie. Why is that the title? (laughs) Uh, When you write a book, uh, there is this process, normally before it's actually done, where you sit there and go back and forth with your editor or your agent uh, and try to come up with a title. And we we had to have 15, 20 of them that we were playing around with. And Thin Blue Lie was the one that stuck out because uh, it was, I had had a conversation with my editor right after the Laquan McDonald video was released in Chicago. And like, if you read the book, you see that that is, that is a big part of the the main thesis of the book. And during that conversation, I said, you know, uh, Rahm Emanuel just stood up there and told a lie. It was, Mm -hmm. it was a lie that was, it was built around how uh, police had responded and how the city of Chicago is going to solve really significant problems that were happening uh, with policing um, and in Chicago. And uh, so we went with it. It seemed like it worked. So it seems I read the book. Uh, I read it in three days over this past week. Um, (laughs) Thanks for getting through it. I want to be well prepared for this conversation. I don't want to sound foolish. Uh, um, Taser International in my mind, is the star of the book. Absolutely. Uh, how did that happen? How did you end up taking such a deep dive into the company? Well, I was, I was talking about the names that, that we were playing with for the book. I mean, one of the original names for the book was Non-Lethal. Um, and it was really built around uh, Taser International from the get-go because Taser International, now Axon Enterprise, is the perfect example of what a business that sells to police wants to be. I mean, it started as, as you, you go through the book, you see this, it started as this company created around a product invented in a man's garage that was very unsuccessful for years and years and years. Uh, this guy, Jack Cover, he invented the taser in his garage uh, in the wake of the, the Watts protests and, and uprisings. 
and he he quit his job. He was an engineer, or he was, yeah, I guess he was an engineer at Hughes Aircraft, um, and quit that job because he had he believed that his invention, his taser, was going to just fly off the shelves, and he couldn't sell it to anyone. But he had quit his job. He had given up his entire life for this thing, and so he tried to sell it and tried to sell it. And so it went from that point, from the point where this was a very unsuccessful business, to what it is today. This is a publicly traded company um, that it has a, bar- a market cap of billions of dollars. And I mentioned to you earlier, there was a Wall Street Journal piece that ran last week talking about how the CEO of this company pulled down $247 million in uh, bonuses this past year. I mean, this is a company that is very successful and has grown from, indeed, a, a company that was unsuccessful to the most successful company in policing. Uh, and so it, it serves as an example of what police uh, companies want to be when they get into this industry. And so I thought it was a telling the story of this company was a really good way to understand uh, the motivations behind why companies get into policing and uh, you know, what the effect is. Let's talk about that. The reason why Jack Cover thought that this invention would take off is because at that time in the mid 60s, there was talk or even before that, for that matter, about some kind of non-lethal weapon for police that would not require them to be in close proximity to the person they were encountering. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about that. The premise of your book is that these advancements in technology don't fulfill their promise. So what was the problem that the taser stun, well, I don't know if stun gun's the right phrase, but the taser um, was supposed to fix, and why hasn't that happened? The premise is going to be a familiar one to, to anyone listening to this podcast. You had circumstances where people were shot and killed. Jack Cover figured that if there was a better non-lethal uh, option for police to use, then they would use it, and fewer people would get shot and killed. Um, that was the premise that he started with. And it was apparent fairly early on that his premise was not actually going to work. And actually, I mean, we can get into this. The, the first police department that actually um, took on the taser and made an investment in it in a major way was the Los Angeles Police Department. Um, and the first thing that officers noticed within the, within the Los Angeles Police Department was that it wasn't strong enough. They would try to use it on the streets, and it wouldn't work. Nobody would actually get shocked into submission with this thing. And so they went back to, to Jack Hover, and they said, uh, well, why don't you, why don't you uh, make it a little bit stronger so that it really shocks people? Uh, and he did. And what he did uh, in that process was make the weapons strong enough to actually capture someone's heart rhythms and, and kill them. Um, and so the process of him creating what the police actually wanted um, changed his idea from one that was a non-lethal weapon, uh, trying to uh, put police in circumstances where they could use a non-lethal weapon instead of a firearm, um, to uh, you know using something that could actually kill them. So an, a lethal weapon for a lethal weapon, or in exchange for a lethal weapon. Right, and you you go in the book you go through how they were jacking up the power. I think the original started at three watts, and by the end it was up to twenty six watts for yeah. the purpose of actually involuntarily contracting a person's muscles instead of the the earlier versions people were able to withstand the pain is that mm-hmm. is that right yeah that's true and you know i think this idea of a of a non-lethal weapon um is worth exploring a bit because 
one of the at one point in the book, one of the executives is quoted saying that he actually thought maybe the taser could lead to an end to police shootings. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at another point, soon thereafter, um, there's a message that police are getting to taser more and taser often. And it just seemed like the taser became just another tool for committing violence against people. And in fact, shootings didn't even go down, right? Yeah, uh, both of those things are true. I think a lot of this, um, you know, Taser International, so that was a little bit later on. So Jack Cover, that first sale happened in uh, 1979, 1980. By the time Taser International um, was in existence and moving toward becoming a publicly traded company, that's like the late 1990s, um, early 2000s. And you've got to remember that you've got the the two people who were responsible for Taser International, for the most part, are these two brothers from Scottsdale, Arizona, uh, Rick and Tom Smith. And this is right around the time of the dot-com boom and bust. Um, and so people are really drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, they are really getting behind their products. And I think by that time, uh, the Smiths and the other folks who were working with that company had really bought into this product. Um, and so I'm not sure that they were even aware of the contradiction that you point out there. Um, they thought that no matter how much they boosted the power of these tasers, that they were still going to be non-lethal, um, despite lots of evidence to the contrary. Um, and so I, I think a lot of it, you know, I, I talk about this as a business book, is is about that, is about uh, these executives and people who, wor- who worked with them really talking themselves into believing that this was a non-lethal weapon when it was very apparent that it wasn't. And, you know, it seems like it, it would be tempting for police to use this regularly. Um, but at the same time, the malfunction rate is so high that you could also understand why they might not use it. Absolutely. And, and you, you go through that in the book. I go through it in a book, and, and really that conversation started quite early in the in the history that has become public. Like a lot of the a lot of the Taser story happens in the eighties and, and early nineties before they started to be talked about on a on a level that they are right now. Like, you know, Kleenex and Xerox and Taser. I mean, these are brand names that, that almost everybody knows about. Um uh but we gotta remember that uh tasers were used in the Rodney King. Uh, beating. <clears throat> and that's one of the reasons that the Rodney King beating escalated to the point where it did, is that they tried to use tasers on Rodney King and they didn't work. So police have been aware of this problem for a long time. And as you point out, and you'll read in the book, um, there is a lot of evidence suggesting that tasers often don't work and tasers are deployed and uh, people fight through the shock, um, yet they continue to be used. And they're not used as a substitute for firearms either. They're, at one point in the book, you talk about how they're often being used because someone's not following verbal commands, yeah. which is a huge problem out on the street for folks who are encountering the police. Well, indeed, that was the reason, that was the initial reason why they were used. I, I mean, they were not, police did not, police and police leaders in the early 1980s did not look at tasers as an alternative to firearms. They looked at them as a tool that could be used specifically when people were high on drugs that made them uh, very active. So PCP is the drug that always gets thrown out. Um, and in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, this was a big concern among officers in the Los Angeles Police Department particularly. And uh, police officers would run into people who were naked and sweaty and not armed at all, and they had no interest in actually like 
wrestling these people to the ground. Um, and so they would shout orders at them and they wouldn't listen. And so the taser provided an alternative to that, actually, to them actually getting sweaty with these people to wrestle them to the ground. And being in hand-to-hand -hand combat. And being in hand-to-hand -hand right. combat, right. exactly. And so that's really where I think in the conversations I've had with officers, that's where uh, they view tasers as being really valuable. You know, as I was reading the book, I couldn't help but read it through the lens of a civil rights advocate. And I was also thinking about the communities that are impacted by these practices. Um, and I realized that you're right. You were writing it to tell a specific story about how technology evolved and how it's been. Um, it has not fulfilled its promise. It, it's to some degree been a failure, depending upon the types of technologies we're talking about. Um, so. I, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on the book. It felt like there are like a whole bunch of other threads as I was reading it that it, I was thinking about. Sure. Um, that are definitely underlying oh, it, all it of this. It is not all encompassing. I mean, there are, there are a lot of threads to pull from this book. I mean, just around CompStat. Like, CompStat is a big part of the book. Um, and I am, I am laser focused on CompStat and how CompStat was deployed specifically as a mechanism to control crime problems that existed. And do you, do you, you want know, to say real quickly what CompStat is? Yeah, sorry about that. So CompStat, very simple idea, computer statistics. And uh, it was introduced by Bill Bratton and a guy named Jack Maple. And they would take very early crime statistics um, and uh, plot them on a wall. They would you know, have a map of a, of a, a, a district that they were in charge of. Uh, and they would say, you know, here's where the crimes are happening in this particular district. And then they would instruct people in that district. This is normally in transit, actually, in New York City. Uh, they would tell uh, people where to go. Um, and then as it expanded, computers started to be used to do the exact same thing. So it's basically crime mapping, like crime mapping as it started um, from the very beginning. And it became this, this technology that was used in the NYPD. But CompStat encompassed... Uh, a whole philosophy of how data and statistics should be used to deploy police officers on the street. And I, I, I talk about the, the holistic approach that they took to using those crime stats and really holding precinct commanders uh, to uh, standards of fighting crimes that were actually mapped. Now, that's what I was talking about. That's the technological component. But, you know, Anybody who has looked into New York City during that period knows that stop and frisk was a was a huge issue, and you know there were communities that uh, you know mostly communities of color that were unbelievably negatively affected by this. Um, and there are uh, you know many better writers who have gotten into this, and you know civil rights advocates such as yourself who have gotten into that history. And I didn't feel it was exactly fitting with the technological aspect of my book. But they're there, and there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff like that, that that's in the book that I, that I imagine that an ACLU audience would really be interested. In. Yeah, and it seems like another possible conclusion from the book, and you kind of implied this in the final chapter, the one about body worn cameras, particularly people coming at it from a civil rights or civil liberties angle would be thinking about this, um, is that you can have all the technology available, um, but if the culture of policing doesn't change, then all the technology is is just another tool for that problematic culture. Absolutely. So let's talk about body-worn cameras, since I've mentioned it. Um, there is that chapter toward the end of the book that talks about the rise of body cams and why people thought they would be this wonderful tool that would balance, bring balance to police community conflicts. Here at the ACLU, we realized pretty quickly that they could be really problematic. And in fact, the year that you worked for us, we were right in the middle of that argument 
at the legislature. I was doing a lot of the reporting for this book on body cameras while I was here. Yeah, and and we had at the same time we had grassroots community folks telling us that that's just another type of surveillance. So tell us a little bit about you know what you learned on body cameras as you were doing your research. Uh, I mean, they can be used as a, as a form of surveillance. And what I honed in on was, you know, I'm writing about business. And so I, I, I wrote a little bit about how the uh, different businesses are trying to get into this industry and how Ferguson ended up being a, uh, a rallying cry to get as many companies and police organizations, uh, police districts uh, to purchase body cameras. Um, what I realized, and, you know, we talked about this while I was at the ACLU, is that when Ferguson, when Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson, there was a lot of conversation coming out of the police community talking about how body cameras represented an opportunity for police to restart a conversation with the communities that they serve, that they would use body cameras as an opportunity to make footage available and show communities how police were interacting um, with people within the communities. Um, and for that reason, there was a lot of support on both sides for, for body cameras. The result was a lot of money was put into it, including tens of millions of dollars of federal funds that were given out in block grants to, to police organizations. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I believe that a lot of people got behind the idea of body cameras because of that, because they were promised that it would be a tool for transparency. It would be a tool for letting communities understand how uh, police interacted with them. But what has occurred since then, and I think Pennsylvania is, is one of the most dire examples of this, is that uh, you've had legislatures, policymakers making decisions that prohibit body camera footage from being made public, prohibit the kinds of transparency and conversation uh, from happening. So um, it's, uh, it's, they can be used for surveillance um, and they can be used for evidence. But a lot of the early ideas after Ferguson about body cameras being used in, um, in better means that lead us toward transparency. It just, it just hasn't happened in the way that it could have. Yeah, I sat there in those committee meetings at the legislature when they were debating this bill, um, the one that ultimately became law, and I had to listen to the chairman say, everybody wants body cameras because then, you know, we'll be able to hold police accountable and we'll know what happened and we'll also be able to hold the individuals accountable because it won't be a he said, he said, or she said, he said situation. But in fact, the way that bill was written ultimately made the footage, um, it exempted it from the right to know law. Um, and the morning call of Allentown did a report um, in November where they did a right to know request on how many requests the state police were getting for video footage. And they found out of 16 requests that only two were ever granted. And so you end up in this situation where, as you describe, they basically become a PR tool for law enforcement. Yeah, they, they definitely do. Man, I, I was really surprised by that story. You sent it over to me, the, the McCall piece. I was surprised that more right-to-know law requests were not filed. And I wonder if the mere existence of that law and the, the organizations like the ACLU, and I did the same thing, talking about how that footage um, isn't available, I, I wonder if the law itself and the coverage of it dissuaded people from making uh, right-to-know law requests 
Um, and maybe if that was the the whole point to to begin with, like right. stop asking for this footage, basically. Yeah. Well, and we say now that the most powerful tool for police accountability is a cell phone in your pocket. Right. And the cases where there are many cases where we've seen footage, but that's because a bystander was filming it. Antoine Rose here in Allegheny County is an obvious example. Uh, Walter Scott uh, in South Carolina who was shot by an officer as he was running away from him. Um, in Lancaster, there was a case last year where a man was following the commands of two different police officers at the same time and got tasered while sitting on a curb. And, you know, we, we know about that because a bystander was filming it. It almost gets to the point where I feel like we, I guess we, <laughs> I don't want to be this negative, but we just kind of write off body cameras as a tool for public transparency. It's, it's basically a tool for the police. That seems right to me. And, and it seems uh, obvious in retrospect that that is, of course, what was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting, uh, does AC, the ACLU still have still have an app? What's the name of the app? We're doing oh, yeah, Mobile people? Justice. Yeah, Mobile Justice. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good idea. And it's such a good idea that uh, Axon Enterprise, the, the main uh, producer of body cameras, created its own app like that where you could automatically up to upload cell phone footage of an incident that you saw to, <laughs> to Axon Enterprise. Wow. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I guess you could do that. If your alternatives are uploading it to the ACLU or uploading it to Axon, um, <laughs> Which would, I'm going to choose would, the ACLU. Yeah, I, I probably would too. <laughs> it puts it directly into the hands of the police officers who you're you're trying to record. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, that's a that's a really good idea for an app um, and something that I that I hope you guys are promoting uh, regularly. So I don't like to end this on a down note, but <laughs> uh, you know I feel like once these tools and practices are in place, they don't go away. Um, the only incentive for law enforcement to stop using them would be if it gets too expensive um, or if they don't function the way law enforcement wants them to. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking a little bit beyond technology, too. You know, we, we hear this in the, um, in the school context where once a school has school resource officers in place, it's hard to get rid of them. We're dealing with the issue right now of police chiefs and DAs and municipal governments not identifying police officers who shoot and kill people. Um, just happened yesterday, May 8th, uh, in Center County, where the DA announced that a police officer would not be charged um, for killing a young man, Osaze Osagi, um, and the DA will not identify who the officer is. I think there's a public reason um, for knowing that, and we think that at the ACLU. That's not my only in my individual opinion. Um, but all of that to say, once these practices are in place, they're hard to get rid of or technology in this case. Once these tools are in place, they're hard to get rid of. Um, so I realize that you're a journalist, you're a writer, um, your job is to shine a light on issues, not necessarily to create the solutions to them. I guess that's, us to, that's up to us advocates. But having said that, <laughs> with what you know from your research, all the work you've done uh, in preparation for this book, what do you think the future is? And what's your advice for how to approach these issues? If you're someone in the public who cares about this stuff, I mean, is it just a matter of being more skeptical? You you had some polling data in there that shows the polling support for like body cameras is, you know, it's it's approaching ninety percent. Yeah, that polling data really shocked me when I saw it. I, I was expecting the opposite, and I think part of the reason why is that people still believe that they can get body camera footage because when they see it, um, 
I mean, if you search the internet, there's a there's a whole Reddit uh, uh, board on this. It's just body camera footage. So I think people have the impression that body camera footage is widely available. But you've got to keep in mind that uh, there are 18,000 police forces in the uh, United States, and there are police interactions that are happening all the time. And I think if people get a little bit more knowledge about when the footage is not available, uh, they'll start to put more pressure on their leaders in government and in policing to start changing those policies. That is, I th again, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think that the concept of body cameras is a good idea. I think the concept of body cameras, I think body cameras themselves can lead to transparency just as they were promised initially. But the reason why they didn't move in that direction is that people thought that simply purchasing body cameras would be enough. That there, uh, that there wouldn't be any need to, to push back against any legislature or lobbying entity uh, after that to make sure that that footage would be public. And that's what I would suggest for, for civil rights uh, leaders and people who care about these issues. That you just got to pay attention. Like Try to figure out how your uh, local police department is spending money, what sorts of technology they're purchasing, and then try to figure out how it's being used. Um, and 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 how that is affecting your community. ShotSpotter is being used all over the country right now. It's being used in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. ShotSpotter is a technology that uh, supposedly identifies uh, it. You know, identifies when a shot is fired. Um, and we know a little bit about how the technology works. Uh, but we don't have any concrete numbers about how frequently it misidentifies uh, something as, as being a shot fired and randomly sends police officers out to neighborhoods that are uh, typically uh, neighborhoods uh, where people of color live um, because that's where they, they plant these microphones. I mean, you have microphones that are just sitting there out on the streets recording all the time. Um, how is shot spotter being used? What sort of money is being spent on shot spotter right now? Um, how is your, your police department using tasers? I mean, people need to participate in these discussions. Um, and they participate in the discussions, they might find out more, um, and then they might turn down that contract renewal next time it comes up with your police department. And that's really the only way things are going to change. The name of the book is Thin Blue Lie, The Failure of High-Tech Policing. Matt, thanks for taking the time and thanks for your insight. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Matt Stroud for the chance to talk about police technology and his new book, Thin Blue Lie, which is available at booksellers everywhere. Also, check out Post Industrial at postindustrial.com. Their first print edition will be released at the end of this month. That wraps up episode 25. The editor of Speaking Freely is Amy Giacomucci. Our music is from bensound.com. The executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania is Reggie Shuford. I'm Andy Hoover, the host, writer, and director of this podcast. Until next time, be free.